And we have been working through a series called uh, Six Keys to a Healthy Marriage. And today we're going to be looking at two more keys. We started last week. Uh, this week I want to start with a video clip. Uh, because uh, if you are married, and even if you're not married, you know that marriages can be really, really tough. And uh, sometimes there's marital situations that are unbelievably tough. And I want to show this video to remind us of the power of God. Uh, that when you surrender to the power of God and you're willing to follow God in your marriage, it is amazing what He can do in the midst of the, some of the most difficult situations. And so uh, I'm going to watch a video testimony. We had the kind of marriage that people would look at and go, okay, I want, I want a marriage like that when I grow up. We loved doing life together. We loved our children. We loved everything that we did. We were leaders of the church. We were leaders in our whole city. Bob and Audrey Meisner met in Bible college. We'd talk about everything all the time, just sharing our lives and dreams and hopes together. I was uh, completely enthralled by her. I felt so safe with Bob because he loved God. I felt like I could be with him forever. They married, started a family, and dove into ministry work. They had big dreams for the future. With our desire to be world changers, what you got to do is work. We were pastoring a church and also working for my mom and dad and their TV ministry. I had no idea how hard it would be. A few months into the marriage, Audrey realized that Bob's communication style was completely different. He could easily confront me if something was wrong. So what I made a vow in my heart was, I am going to do everything possible so that he will never yell at me again. And I became the ultimate performer and the ultimate pleaser. By now, the Meisners were hosting their own television program, and the hard work of ministry took a toll on Audrey, who was afraid to speak up. The busyness got so tiring and so exhausting, and so I remember stuffing down those feelings because I knew Bob loved the church, and so I could never tell him how I really felt. This continued for years, and then a family friend from church began spending more time with the Meisners. He was extremely energetic and playful and liked to be with our kids. And He was fun. He was young. He reminded me of being a kid again. He didn't have a family. It was very natural, you know, at, at the beginning, and we'd invite him, you know, to be in holidays with us and so forth. But this new family friend began giving more attention to Audrey. He would overly flirt with me. You're so beautiful. I want to find someone in this world that could even be as half as amazing as you. Something in my heart gravitated towards that and I thought that's what I need. Over time, their relationship grew closer. I knew something had changed in my heart when, when I knew he was coming over and I wanted to look really good when he got there. And I felt like I was in control. I felt that I could have a relationship with a, a young guy in the church and just help him out. And I had no reason you know, to doubt her love for me. I mean, we were still, you know, extremely intimate with each other, loving with each other. So I thought everything was fine. But Audrey's desire for the other man grew stronger. You know, our shoulders would bump or his hands would touch mine. And I started to notice my reaction to that I was like, oh, you know, that felt good, you know, that he touched me. I really told myself, I can have it all. This relationship won't really affect the rest of my life. And I began to notice myself lying so that I could be alone with him. I just dove in and said, you know what, I've gone this far anyway, I'm just going to do this. And that's when it became sexual. Our relationship became sexual. The affair continued for three weeks. I just lied to the people I love the most in order to get away with this guy and be inappropriate sexually and have an affair. 
this is not me. Audrey realized she couldn't continue living the double life and ended the affair. Now she had to tell her husband of 17 years what she had done. I was scared out of my mind. I was shaking. If it came down to a choice of who I would choose, there was never a question in my mind. I wanted my husband and my kids. I haven't confronted him for 17 years of little things. And now I'm gonna tell him the most betraying message I could ever imagine. I sat very close to him and whispered in his ear and said, I've done something extremely inappropriate. I saw just extreme rage and hatred come out of his eyes. This wasn't just a little mistake. This wasn't just a little oops or a hiccup. And I wanted to, you know, punch holes in walls, slam doors, you know, express some anger or rage. I felt so much shame for what I did and so much deep regret. All I wanted to do was get her fixed. She's the problem. She had the affair. Every happy memory of 17 years of marriage was gone. My head was screaming with words, she doesn't love you. She's never loved you. Your marriage has been a farce. Bob called a marriage counselor who had been a guest on their television program. The couple flew to Phoenix the next day to meet with him. Well, he starts with me, begins to rip me up one side and down the other. And he said this to me, he says, Bob, you're spiritually lazy. I got, you know, daily Christian television. I'm pastoring a church. I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a counselor. I mean, I've got all these activities going on and you call me spiritually lazy. And he says, Audrey, anyone who does what you just did does not respect her husband. I want you to get alone with God and ask him the moment you started disrespecting him. And he says, Bob, what's done is done. What I need to know is whether or not you will become the man of God that you need to be to keep your family together. Before you go to bed, you will get down on your knees and you will pray with each other. I can't remember the last time we had prayed with each other. The only words that we could get out were, God, we need you. And we cried and we cried. Every part of our relationship had to come to a new level of transparency. All of a sudden, there was no room for any secrets. But one big secret was yet to be revealed. A few months later, they received news from the doctor. Audrey was pregnant. I had had a vasectomy, so I knew, you know, that it wasn't me. He must have seen the fear all over our faces because he immediately followed that statement with the question, do you want to continue the pregnancy? And I immediately answered, yes, without a doubt. I was scared out of my mind. And yet, that was the first moment I felt strength from Bob. Before, everything inside of me wanted to punish her. Now I recognize that she's carrying a baby and that she needed my help. This baby's gonna need parents. I want to be that dad. Bob and Audrey resigned from their positions, moved to Phoenix, and told their children what was going on. We knew that it was a biracial situation and that our children needed to know. I was so scared that my kids would be messed up because I'm one of those moms that I love my kids more than life itself. They walked in seeing a mom and dad sitting on the floor crying. I spoke to them how I loved their mom and that we're a family and that we belong together and that I'm not going anywhere. And with her held in my arms and covered, I looked at them and I said, you're gonna have a baby brother. 
Five months later, Bob and Audrey rushed to the delivery room. It was one of the most beautiful days of my life. This little boy was nothing but a gift, an absolute gift. When our son was born, I gave him my name, Robert. Middle name, Theodore, and then Meissner. Because I don't want my son to ever question one day in his life whose boy he is. Theodore means divine gift. Ten years later, Bob and Audrey's marriage is stronger than ever. Our relationship became dynamic like it had never been before because now I'm being honest and he's being honest. There needed to be a transparency and a vulnerability to be willing to be known by the other person. And so this was new territory for us. If we can get through the fears that keep you from communicating and the fears that keep you, you know, in this, in this dysfunctional dance and really start having a relationship with no secrets, there is nothing more fun than that. Our little Robert is our nutcake. He's so much fun, so full of personality, never a dull moment. And those three older kids love him with every part of their being. If you see them all together, there's so much laughter. Mm -hmm for the extent that I have experienced his love and his grace. I'm the most thankful person you'll ever meet. I don't get what I deserve because of what he did. He paid this high price to really take my sin and to really take my shame. And because he lives inside of me, I don't get what I deserve. I get what he deserves. That's amazing love. Last week, I'll do a little review here, we talked about uh, first two keys, but we also talked about two sort of uh, overriding principles uh, of marriage, and one being uh, to make sure that you're praying for your marriage. Uh, God desires for marriages to thrive, and I know if you are married, you desire your marriage to thrive, and so you have automatically two people rooting for your marriage. And the Bible says that when you pray anything according to his will, that he, that he hears you. And so uh, prayer is a powerful tool in marriage. And so make sure you're praying for your marriage. And we also talked about the second overriding principle, which is one of the best things you can do for your spouse is, is to love God with all your heart. Uh, that when you have a growing, dynamic love relationship with God, it can be one of the best gifts you can give to your spouse. Because when you are close to God, uh, I mean, you are just filled. <laughs> You can't be close to God without being filled. And the more you're filled, the more you have to give and to spill over into your relationship. And so you're praying for your marriage. Uh, make sure you're walking close to God. And then we begin to talk about a few keys. Uh, the first one was heart work. Uh, that good marriages are when two people are willing to work on their brokenness within. Uh, sometimes it's easy for us to, to kind of blame uh, external circumstances for our marital issues. Like... You know, it's, it's my job situation, or it's because I'm so busy, or it's, you know, it's, it's, it's because of our crazy kids, or it's something external that the problem is. But the reality is, there are people who have great marriages who are financially poor. There are people who have great marriages who maybe live busy lives. There are people who have great marriages who even have crazy kids. I mean, it's not an external thing, though those can add a lot of pressure to a marriage. It's actually the brokenness with inside. And this is what Jesus said. The words you speak come from your heart. That's what defiles you. From your heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, 
theft, lying, and slander. Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from your heart of your inner being. And so uh, if we have brokenness inside, that will come out in inappropriate actions in marriage or inappropriate words or uh, in a way that wrecks it or hurts your marriage. And so we talked about making sure we deal with inner brokenness. Because if you don't deal with your inner brokenness, it will always come out some way in your marriage and, and, and come out negatively in your marriage. I mean, issues of brokenness that we try to hide or push down, it'll pop up somewhere in our marriage. And so uh, we need to make sure we're dealing with uh, that brokenness in our lives. And all of us have brokenness from different things. From our past, just being born in this broken world. We talk about these four uh, things, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and, and stonewalling or distancing, and how these things, the more you see them in marriage, the higher your, uh, the prediction of divorce comes. And so we talked about making sure that you're working these things out of your life. And again, a lot of these things come out of, out of brokenness. And then we talked about the second key, which was forgiveness. That a happy marriage is the union of two forgivers. Because all of us are broken, uh, you're, married a broken, you're marrying a broken person. And therefore, there's going to be lots and lots of opportunity for forgiveness. And we talked about making sure that we have what I call like pre-charged forgiveness. That, that forgiveness is actually just ready to be let loose. And so when your spouse does do something that is broken and it hurts you, your forgiveness is already there. Otherwise... What happens to some people when they're hurt? They gotta, you know, a week later they're trying to work up this, and now they're bitter and angry, and they gotta work up. I gotta try to forgive, and and all of a sudden there's been a week of turmoil. Rather than when your spouse hurts you, the forgiveness is, is right there. Now, obviously, there's some issues that would be deeper than just that. I mean, issues of adultery can take some time to work for, uh, through, but issues of criticism, defensive, and blaming, and those kind of things, there needs to be this forgiveness that that is is just there, and the reason is because. We call ourselves followers of Jesus, and we follow the one who is the most radical, crazy forgiver ever, as he hung on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The one who looked at all of us and, and all of our sin, and he says, I forgive you. As far as the east is from the west, I forgive you. And so we bring that into our marriages with this, just, we're just ready to forgive. Every day we're just ready to forgive, and when it happens, we, we just forgive. <coughs> Now, the third key we're going to look at is time together. And by the way, if you're here and you're not married, uh, these principles are basic relationship principles. And so uh, if, if you have friends or you want to have a better relationship with your parents or with your kids or if you want to get married in the future, a lot of these principles, maybe except when we talk about sex, <coughs> apply, right? <laughs> so the third uh, principle is, is time together. A, a healthy marriage requires time together. As someone, or as the old saying goes, that the love is a four-letter word spelled T-I-M-E. requires time. And we know this in all realms of life. I mean, if I want to have a great relationship with God, it means I've got to spend time with God. I mean, you look at people who have these thriving relationships with God and, and they're like, man, I heard God speak to me today and God's doing this in my life. Those are always people who spend a lot of time with God. And then you, you see people who are like, I never hear God and, you know, uh, I don't know what God is doing. And it's just people who tend not to spend time with God. The more you spend with God, the better your relationship is. And it's the same with marriage. Relationships require time. In fact, you can look at a, uh, a, a marriage like a garden. 
you go to anybody's house, you've got your amazing garden, uh, like Troy's place. It's worth a field trip there one day in the summer. Uh, I mean, everything's just like immaculate. And, and, and you realize anybody who's got an amazing garden, you know they put a lot of time into it. Because there's weeding and building and shaping and watering and, and fertilizing. Uh, you know there's time. And when you look at someone and you look at a marriage and say, wow, that's, that's a good marriage. You can bet that those people spend time together. Now, if you have a beautiful garden, and everybody has, when, when they get married, on the day of marriage, I mean, it's, it's like the highlight, and it's so beautiful, and you can say that's a beautiful garden, but if you begin to spend less and less time together, and especially, especially time where you're vulnerable or talk about emotions, your garden begins to get overrun. And it doesn't happen immediately. Weeds slowly begin, begin to grow up. Maybe things aren't being watered properly. They begin to wilt. And this is the tendency of marriages that, especially in this world where it can be so busy. I mean, there are so many fun things to do. So many things ringing and dinging and banging and bonging, getting our attention, right? I mean, uh, it can push relationship out of our lives. And so we need to make sure we are spending time together. And the Bible talks about this idea of of responsibilities to marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. It says, An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In other words, if you're married, you can't live like you're single. Because you have earthly responsibilities, and part of those responsibilities is to please your wife, to spend time with her and to love her and to serve her. So your interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. And, and so there's this idea that, that we have these responsibilities if you're married. Uh, you can't live like you're single. You can't do all the things you used to do as you're single because now you're married. You have a responsibility to spend time and to invest and to serve when it comes to your marriage. So the application of this first one is to really make sure you schedule undivided attention time together each week. The time you plan together should, be, uh, should not include children who are awake. Maybe if they're sleeping, that's okay. Relatives or friends. This is undivided attention time where it's just you and your spouse and you're meeting each other's needs and loving each other and communicating and being intimate and vulnerable with each other. And I know for Marie and I, uh, the quality of our relationship is often dependent on how much time we're spending together. I mean, both of us live super busy schedules. I mean, both work all day and then I'm out a lot of evenings. And so uh, for us, we've seen it's very important to carve out those times because if we don't, that means you can just stay busy all the time. And so the old theory of have a date night, or uh, again, expensive to go out and eat, but at least uh, spend some time at home and do your own meal at home, or something that you can do where there's undivided attention time, because good marriages, they spend time together. Now what I want to talk about, oh, there's another slide here. Uh, also, uh, spend time growing and learning. Uh, in Canada, they've done studies, have asked the question, like, what's your number one goal in life? And do you know most people's number one goal in life is to have a healthy romantic relationship? Like above finances and above career is to have a healthy, good, growing, loving relationship. But it's amazing how many people don't spend time learning about that. 
mean, we go to school to learn our careers, and uh, you know, uh, we you know maybe invest in certain things to get ahead financially. But uh, a lot of people who are, who are married have never read a book on marriage, have never gone to a marriage seminar. In fact, we talked about last week how marriage is in trouble that end in divorce, only 10% of those marriages actually even reach out for help. And so there are awesome resources that you can use to grow in marriage. I mean, if you want to be better at the piano, you got to play the practice if you got to work at it. If you want to be better at skiing, you, you need to practice. I mean, nobody hops on skis and it's awesome in the first moment. And somehow we think that we can jump in marriage and it's going to be beautiful because it's in love. It's going to be all easy, right? <laughs> And so, uh, I, uh, I mean, read at least one marriage book every year, and, uh, and I mean, there's just so much good stuff up there, especially if you know there's brokenness in your heart and in your life, and you know that brokenness is affecting your marriage, then work on it. Don't keep wasting year after year after year of a struggling marriage because you're not dealing with the brokenness inside. And so in your sermon notes, and if you didn't get a bulletin, there's more out there, uh, I just put a list of some resources that can be helpful in marriage. But what I want to focus on today is the idea of uh, the emotional bank account. Um, uh, Gottman uses this idea. If you've read uh, His Needs, Her Needs by Will and Harley, he talks about the idea of a love bank. We've talked about that before. Uh, but the idea is this, that uh, when you meet somebody, uh, your love bank, if you will, or your piggy bank, or your emotional bank account towards that person is empty because you haven't had any positive things from them, you haven't had any negative things, because you haven't met this person. And let's say you meet somebody and uh, you, have, you have a nice little conversation. It adds money to your little love bank or to your emotional account because I had a good conversation with that person. And then you have another conversation with that person and you know, it goes quite well. And then you have a whole bunch of more conversations and maybe you start to hang out a little bit, you go to a movie, and, uh, and maybe, maybe at one time you kind of hold hands a little bit and, and you start feeling kind of good about this person, right? Uh, your, your love bank is getting filled because you have all these positive interactions with this person. And usually when you're dating, you have very few negatives because everybody's working really, very hard not to make a mistake, uh, right? And so your love bank is getting to full. But what Willard Harley talks about is there is a certain time in your relationship where you hit what he calls romantic love. You get to this level where all of a sudden you start to feel romantically in love with this person. And once you feel romantically in love, I mean, you're in trouble because you can't really, it's hard to go the other way. You just want to go forward because you're romantically in love and this is where you're like, oh, I'm so in love, I want to get married and we want to just live life forever after together, right? Because you're romantically in love. And what he found is that as he studied marriages, he began to realize that, that when a couple was romantically in love, that they never thought about divorce. And so he has this idea that we in our marriages need to make sure that our emotional bank accounts or our love accounts in our marriage are always above the romantic level. Because when you're in love and, and you're filled with romance, you don't want to get divorced. But what can happen over time is you can begin to uh, distance each other, uh, uh, begin to distance. Uh, Peter McFadden said this, when my wife and I got married, more than 12 years ago now, we were convinced that we uh, would have a happy life together. Our courtship was exciting and our wedding day was a dream. 
Little did we know that a switch flipped in both of our heads on the day we said, I do. Indeed, the very next day, the first full day of our married life, my wife and I would begin taking each other for granted. And all of a sudden, you're not saying as many nice things to your spouse. And the busyness of life kind of gets a hold of you, and so you're not spending as much time together. And maybe you get to know this person really well, and you, you find out that they never put the toilet seat down, and, and, uh, and they don't roll up the toothpaste, or whatever it might be. I mean, maybe they're messier than you want. And, and, and all of a sudden, you find in your marriage that you've dropped below the romantic level. And all of a sudden, you're like, man, we're just kind of like roommates. You know, I like this person. They're kind of a, I enjoy them sometimes. But, but you've dropped below the romantic level, and, and this is when marriages get in trouble. In fact, uh, Dr. Sue Johnson put it this way. When marriages fail, it is not increasing conflict that is the cause. It is decreasing affection and emotional responsiveness, according to a landmark study by Ted Houston at the University of Texas. Indeed, the lack of emotional responsiveness, rather than the level of conflict, is the best predictor of how solid a marriage will be five years into it. The demise of marriage begins with a growing absence of responsive, intimate interactions. The conflict become, uh, comes later. It's just a slow draining of the love bank over time. And when you drop below the romantic level, all of a sudden you don't feel like, oh, I'm so in love. You're like, I'm a little bit frustrated, though I kind of love this person, but I'm frustrated at the same time. And this, by the way, is what opens up a lot of marriages to affairs. And if you are in this room and your marriage has uh, unfortunately had that happen to you, uh, you're not alone because it is, it is quite common these days. It, it affects one out of every 2.7 couples. Uh, one out of every 2.7 marriages will have a, a, an affair um, infiltrate the midst. In fact, it's growing quite quickly. These are older stats. But from 91 to 2006, the rate of adultery increased by 8% for men and 10% for women. In fact, the biggest increase was when they introduced Viagra, by the way. Uh, the level of affairs just skyrocketed. And, wow. and, and it's just growing because, it, I mean, maybe we're just because we're kind of dissatisfied people in this world. And, but, but a lot of marriages, their love banks are rather low. And so what happens in, in a marriage is, is maybe your own marriage, the love bank, is you love this person because you've still got lots of stuff in the love bank, but it's below the romantic level. And you're just kind of roommates, you're hanging out. And then uh, one person in the marriage meets another person. Might be at work, might be on the internet, might be somewhere. Again, uh, their love bank towards this person is kind of zero because they've never met this person. But again, they start to have little conversations at work. Uh, they begin to interact over Facebook or, you know, they begin to have all these conversations. And pretty soon, this, this love bank gets a, a little filled. And, uh, and, and, and maybe they get to hang out, there's minor touching, and, and finally, this person can find their love bank with this other person getting to the romantic level, and all of a sudden they, they kind of feel in love, but at the same time they're like, well, I do love my spouse, but I'm romantically in love with this person, and that's where things begin to go downhill. In fact, when they studied affairs, they basically say there's a road to affair that most people take, and it looks like this. Uh, they meet someone online, 25%, or most often at work. Uh, they begin to share personal information. Uh, they begin to anticipate time together. They begin to hide the friendship from the spouse. They flirt with minor arousing touch. They invent excuses to call or meet, like I got a project or I got to go meet somewhere or help somebody. They begin to mislead themselves, like, well, maybe this isn't so bad or maybe, you know, I can handle this. 
And then they end up going into a, a full-blown affair. And so it is really important that we, if we're married, that we really pay close attention to our love bank. Because most of the time when people fall into an affair, they're like, man, I don't know how this happened. Because you don't, it doesn't, it's usually not just a one-night thing. It's usually something that slowly builds over time, and all of a sudden, the love bank gets fuller with this person than it does with their spouse. I mean, they still love their spouse and, and they care for them, but, but they, they feel romantically in love with this other person. And so if you're married, you need to do whatever you can to make sure you're guarding your love bank. That when it comes to people of the opposite sex at work, that you be careful about sharing too much personal details, that you don't, you're not adding stuff to, to your love bank. But most importantly, you want to make sure that your marriage is above the romantic line. And it's false thinking, as some people think, that you know, once you get married, it's all downhill from there. I mean, once you get married for a long time, you can't have romance anymore. Like, of course you can. I mean, I know some couples that are really, really old, and they just seem like just amazing. Have you ever met them? <laughs> and people are married for like a long time, like like your parents, Sophia. I mean, they just seem like madly romantic love, and they're old, right? Uh, and I mean, you see them because they invest in their marriage, and they make sure that stuff is being added. They make sure that they're not taking too many withdrawals. And so, I mean, you can have an amazing romance-filled relationship if you actually put some work into it. Philippians 2 says, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Your spouse has needs. Your spouse has emotional needs. You have emotional needs. So, but it's important that we are doing whatever we can to meet our spouse's needs. They have a love bank. And you need to be doing whatever you can to make sure that you are filling their love bank with those things that are important. This is why books like His Needs, Her Needs, and the Five Love Languages, those books are really helpful at trying to pinpoint. Because you only have time for so much. But you want to make sure when you spend time with your spouse that you're hitting them in their greatest needs and boosting their love bank as much as, as possible. Now I spent some time talking about uh, the need for emotional connection and the emotional bank account, which is similar to the love bank, but it's more dealing with the emotional side. At the core of relationships is a deep need for emotional connection. Now we as humans, uh, we just want to know and be known. But we want someone to actually really know us for who we are. Now we, that gets clouded because at times we get hurt, but we want to be known and we want to know someone intimately. We want to be able to be vulnerable with the person. We want to be to emotionally connect with people. And so what we are doing all the time is that people are constantly throwing out what we call connectional bids. I want to be known. I, I, I want to be uh, heard. I, I, I want to feel in love. And so we're constantly throwing out these connectional bids. And uh, some examples might be this, bids for emotional connection. It might be you smile at your, your spouse. So when you smile at your spouse, you're throwing out a connectional bid, and you're hoping that that bid's going to be caught, and they're going to smile back. And so when you smile at somebody or at your spouse, I'm smiling at Marie and she's smiling back, so it feels like my love bank. Yeah. <laughs> when you throw out a connectional bid and it's received, guess what happens? You just have received stuff from your spouse into your emotional bank account. You feel good. Now, if you, uh, you say to your spouse, hey, do you have a couple minutes? I, I want to chat about something. And they say, oh, I, I'm kind of busy, but I, I'd love to talk. I'll put that aside. And, I'll, and they answer your bid. It's just added to your emotional bank account. 
you reach out to hug your spouse, and they hug you back. You're, you're reaching out for emotional connection. You're giving a bid, and when they answer, you've just filled up your little love bank. Now, what happens if you smile at your spouse, and they're a bit grumpy that day, and they don't smile back? You've just given an emotional bid, but it's been rejected. What happens is when that happens, you actually lose. Your spouse just took from your emotional bank account. Because you put out a vulnerable bid, it was rejected, and all of a sudden, money's been taken out of your, your bank account. Or you go to your spouse, hey, do you have a couple minutes? And they say, no, I'm really busy, I don't have time, maybe, maybe tonight sometime. They've rejected your bid. You've just lost a little bit out of your emotional bank account. Or you reach out to hug your spouse, and, uh, and they're just going, or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you just lost, and so, uh, or constantly throwing out connectional bids. And this is the same with friendships or anything else, or with parents and kids. Uh, but um, what we need to learn to do is make sure we learn to hear the connectional bids that our spouse is throwing at us. Because when you hear them and you begin to learn them and you receive them, it, it just makes your marriage more filled. Your bank account gets more filled. But if you begin to miss them or reject them, this will empty out your love bank or your emotional bank account. And so here's just some ideas of, of these connectional bids that spouses will throw out. And, it, and we're always throwing these things out. To make you aware, if you're married, you want to do whatever you can to make sure you're catching them and receiving them and not rejecting them. So there might be verbal bids. These are super clear verbal bids. And if you're in a marriage where you feel really secure, I mean, often you'll throw out very clear verbal bids like, I really need to hug right now. I need some time to just sit back and talk with you. Hey, uh, want to have breakfast together? I need to tell you about my day or I'd like to have sex with you tonight or something like that. These are very clear connectional bids. You don't have to guess, and <laughs> they're wanting to connect with you, and you have a choice. You can work with it and add to that your spouse's love bank, or you can reject it and empty their love bank. And that's always a troubling thing to do, because if you keep emptying it, you, you, you get below that romantic love level. Uh, there may be nonverbal bids for connection, like affectionate touching, a handshake, a pat, a squeeze, a kiss, a hug, a shoulder rub. All of those are you're wanting to connect with your spouse. You're throwing out a little connectional bid, Will you hug me? Will you kiss me back? It's a little bit of a vulnerable thing. Uh, facial expressions like smiles or blowing a kiss or you're winking your eye. You're, you're throwing out an emotional bid and you're hoping that it's going to be received and brought back. Uh, playful touch, tickling, wrestling, dancing, a uh, gentle bump or a shove. And that's why you always feel people who are so in love. You know, they wrestle with each other because these are bids for connection. I don't wrestle with my wife because I always lose. <laughs> And I really lose on the tickling match. Is that way you think it's uh, it could be affection. Uh, it could be uh, whatever, some sort of gesture, affiliated uh, gestures. Opening doors, offering a place to sit, handing over a tencel, pointing to a shared activity. You know, with your spouse, you see something amazing. Wow, look at that. And you as your spouse, you go, wow, that's amazing. You shouldn't go, oh, I've seen that before. Because you've just... <laughs> You just reject the bid, and, and all you're doing is taking out of your emotional bank account and making the marriage worse, and you don't want that. So you want to make sure, hey, have you ever heard this joke? Yeah, I'd love to hear it, even though I heard it ten times, right? Yeah. You receive it. <laughs> A lot of times in marriage, what you're going to find is, is what you might call positively masked bids for connection. Because a lot of times, because we always protect ourselves. We don't like being fully vulnerable because we've been hurt before. So most of the time, most of our connectional bids are actually somewhat masked. 
And this is where the hard work becomes and where good marriages begin to learn each other's masks bid for connection. Uh, like a simple statement like this, do you want to watch a show or a movie? Now, maybe not always, but it might be a connectional bid saying, I'd like, actually like to spend time with you, sitting next to you. Uh, what are you doing this afternoon? That could be a question, like I'm doing this, you're doing what It just could be information, but this could be a connectional bid. What are you doing this afternoon? Because I would really like to spend some time with you. See, there's a subtle connectional bid underneath that statement. And your spouse sits on the couch and is gazing at you, and maybe you're busy doing something, they keep looking at you, and, and that's a connectional bid. They're saying, I hope that you catch, see what I'm doing and that you catch my eyes because I'm making a connectional bid. Uh, someone watches says, I had a hard day at work. That's a masked connectional bid. And it's a connectional bid because they're probably saying, I had a hard day at work. And what they're really saying is, you know, I'd really like to talk about my day. You don't say, well, I had a hard day at work too. You should see my day and just ignore because you've just rejected their connectional bid. And you've just robbed out of their little bank account. And uh, that's not a good thing. Or a statement like this, even, I'm so busy. Now, maybe they're just saying that, but that may be a connectional bid. Like, would you think about all the stuff I'm doing, or, or what am I, is what I'm doing valued, or it could be a connectional bid. And so these mass connectional bids you need to be aware of in marriage, because when a spouse throws out a bid, even if it's masked, if it's rejected, it can still take out of the bank account. Now, you the spouse should learn, if you throw out a bid and it's rejected because it was masked and they didn't see it, that you don't you know, go down. There should be forgiveness there, but learn to check out these bids. And then there are negatively masked bids for connection. And these often come out as criticism, complaint, anger, and distancing. And this is super helpful, especially if there's conflict in your marriage. Because most of the time, when a marriage gets low in the love bank, their connectional bids become more and more negatively masked. They're still connectional bids. They're still wanting connection, but they become more and more na uh, masked negatively. And so it may be a statement, why are you always on your phone? A criticism. Uh, you're going to watch TV again. Or why do you always go to the gym? Or why are you never around? Or why do you listen to me? Like these, these nasty statements that come into marriage, they're actually negatively masked connectional bids. Dr. Sue Johnson said this. What couples and therapists too often do not see is that most fights are really protests over emotional disconnection. Underneath all the distress, partners are asking each other, can I count on you, depend on you, are you there for me? Will you respond to me when I need, when I call? Do I matter to you? Am I valued and accepted by you? Do you need me, rely on me? The anger, the criticism, the demands are really cries to their lover, calls to stir their hearts, to draw their mates back in emotionally and reestablish a sense of safe connection. These are bids for connection, but they're put out in sinful ways. They're put out in broken ways. But what you need to learn to do is to see what they're really saying underneath those criticisms and underneath those, those complaints. And so again, we need to hear our partner's calls or bids for connection. When they say a statement, what are they really saying underneath that? And again, it may be any of these things. Uh, can I count on you? Are you there for me? Will you respond to me when I am in need? Do you like spending time with me? Do I matter to you? Am I valued? Am I accepted by you? Do you need me? I desire your presence, your touch in this moment. I need you to hear and listen to me. I desire connection time. I miss you. These things can all come out as criticism and anger or distancing 
like pulling away. Because uh, it just comes out in a, in a kind of a sinful way, in a sinful for pattern. And Proverbs 15, 1 says this. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So if you see wrath coming from your spouse, why are you always at the gym? A gentle answer will turn away wrath. And the gentle answer should try to see what connectional bid is my spouse making. It's probably something along the lines of, you know, I miss you and I want to spend time with you. But it comes out as, why are you spending time in the gym? <laughs> now, if you say back, well, you spend time doing this, and you yell back, you just, your marriage just goes into a turmoil spiral. But if wrath comes your way and you see this is a connectional bid, you know, I'd love, let's try to make some time. Or something, you just kind of see what they're trying to say underneath. It, it can transform uh, marital conflict if you see what is going on. And so we can look at some of these things. Uh, you never listen to me. I mean, what bid for connection might be underlying that? I like to talk to you, or I, I never feel heard, or something like that. Or you never help out around here. <laughs> what connectional bid might that be? <laughs> could be doing housework together, yeah. Could be that. Time together, yeah. It may even be that, that I do a lot of work, and, you're, and you never value it, and uh, so why do you help out around here? Uh, a spouse comes home from work, and they're grumpy, or they start slamming doors. You know, often that's a bid for connection. When you see this in your kids, too, it's often a bid, a bid, a bid for connection. You know, it could be along the lines, you know, I have a really hard day, and, and I'm hurting, and, uh, and, I, and I want someone to notice that. I want someone to engage with that inside. A spouse dis distances themselves, business, work, hobbies, distraction. You just get, remain busy all the time. They don't even look at their spouse, and they're busy, busy, busy. Again, that can be a bid for connection. They're like... I hope my spouse notices that I'm distancing because there's an issue between it and I want that dealt with so we can connect again. And so learn to see these negatively masked bids for connection. So always try to move conversations towards emotional connection, unspoken emotions and irrational fears. Don't hide them, share them. Now you don't want to be negatively masking your, your needs. Because that, it's hard, because sometimes your spouse can't figure them out, and it often ends in an argument. What marriages need to learn to do is that you have, you, you sense this need that I want to spend time with you. Don't say, well, why are you always at the gym? Learn to say, you know, we haven't spent time together in a while. Can we please spend some time together? I mean, you can say, I hate when you're late. Or you can say, I hate when you're late, because it actually reminds me of my dad, who was always late and caused me to feel unloved. Because, again, there's often these emotional bids uh, under underneath some of these things. So if your marriage doesn't have a rich emotional bank account, it's empty or it's low, uh, it's not rocket science how to fill that back up. Most great marriages, again, they say, are not built on like two weeks vacation. <laughs> the majority of great marriages are built when couples begin every single day, I smile at you, you smile back. I hug you, you hug me back. I serve you, you serve me. You know, I've had a hard day and I come home frustrated and, and you listen to me. Uh, you value, you value what I do. Great marriages are built on just, it's these little, little increments that keep the marriage above this line of romantic, romantic love. In fact, they've done studies on this. Gottman, who's kind of the foremost researcher in marriage, he actually comes up with percentages. So if you like math, you can feel like, what percentage do I need in my marriage to be happy? <laughs> Happy couples. Uh, and they've studied over 40,000 marriages quite in-depthly. And this is what they found. 
during every life, day life, so this is just normal life, there are 20 positive interactions for every one negative interaction. So 20 to 1. Now again, this is not big stuff. This is all these little tiny things. Like, <clears throat> do you hear me when I talk? Are you listening to me? Do you smile back? Do you, do you touch me? Do you hold me? These little things. So throughout a day, you want to have it at 20 to 1. Now the thing is, the easiest way to get that stat higher is to have less withdrawals. I mean, you can go 40 to 2, which is the same stat, but if you have like three negatives, I mean, all of a sudden that brings that stat down farther. Do whatever you can to make sure you're not withdrawing. Do whatever you can to make sure you're withdrawing. Now, there's also a ratio that they have found in conflict because every marriage has conflict because you're dealing with two broken people. But they have found in conflict situation that happy marriages have a ratio of 5 to 1 or higher. So when they're arguing over something, and the, the, the one says, well, you never listen to me. And the person says, okay, I really want to understand what you're saying. Can you tell me again? That's a positive addition to the bank account in conflict. Now, if someone says, you never listen to me, and the person says, you never listen to me either, that's, that's a withdrawal. So when your spouse has a criticism, the way you get these positives up in conflict is to try to hear that connectional bid and, and respond to it. And so 5 to 1 in conflict, 20 to 1 in, uh, in, in, in everyday life. But again, it's kind of a hard gear shift here, but we want to end. And uh, I just want to pray this over you and declare this over you who are married. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. And so, God, we ask for your blessing on our marriages. God, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to, to rain down in power. God, I pray you take those marriages in this room that are doing well, and I pray just for more thriving in that relationship. God, I pray for more vulnerability, because vulnerability creates intimacy. And God, may people just be able to learn more and more how to make clear connectional bids and not mask them negatively. God, we pray for any marriage here that is struggling. God, we ask for a miracle over that marriage. We ask for an effusion of love, an unstoppable, unbreakable, agape kind of love that comes from you. God, I pray for any marriage that is struggling with any kind of bitterness. God, that you would wash over that couple with your love, that you would allow forgiveness to flow, that you would allow this fresh new start. And God, I pray you would give us the ability to begin to read our spouses in better ways. God, you give us a supernatural ability to see the connectional bids that our spouse is throwing out, out at us each and every day. So God, we pray for thriving marriages in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.